The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show today Hugh Newman, who's done a tremendous amount of work in helping us understand the way in which the planet works energetically through the geometrical structures, the ley lines, the megalithic structures, the vortexes uh, across the globe and actually doing a lot of research in areas that uh, most people don't even know have important uh, geometrical structures as part of the global landscape. So, Hugh, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me back on, Peter. Cheers. So you've just actually finished a a megalithomania conference in uh, in England. So perhaps you could – I know you're one of the – well, I believe you're one of the founder instigators of megalithomania. So perhaps you could just let our listeners know what megalithomania actually means and how the conference went. Megalithomania is uh, was originally a book by John Michelle, who's like a, a legendary uh, figure in the Earth Mysteries world, um, and he was really the inspiration because he wrote this fantastic book. And it really, you know, anyone who's into megaliths, ancient sites, stone circles, pyramids, things like, whenever you go to these sites, people you do get a kind of strange attraction, magnetism, kind of calling, and you do go crazy about them and have all these brilliant theories that everyone kind of does. Um, so that's kind of what megalithomania is, and, um, and and we're kind of interested in the way it's affected people over generations and their interpretations, so we kind of have that as the theme of the conferences, and also how it's affecting people now, because there's still brilliant ideas come out about megaliths and ancient sites, um, and we, we just want to provide a platform and get people out to sites uh, and introduce them to the top researchers and speakers in the world and all in one place, you know. Um, well, we, we do it in several places now, but, um, yes, yeah, so there's a, a bit of mania about it now, really, hopefully, and uh, it's, it's all the word's getting out. Was there a, a particular uh, revelation or awareness that came out from this conference? I think something that kept coming up this year was the inaccuracy in ancient sites. I mean, we're really realizing now because we had Robert Shock over, so he's obviously done a lot of work on the Sphinx, and now he's working with Gebekli Tepe and other places. Uh, and I took him as soon as he arrived. I took him to Stonehenge, and out in the car park there, there's these three unusual, mysterious, big blobs of circular paint. 
which almost sort of going a slight zigzag, you know, slight triangular line kind of. And um, and the weird thing is about those is that they're they're probably at least ten thousand years old, maybe eleven thousand years old. At least three great. They mark where these three great wooden posts were discovered, and then when they eventually carbon dated them, they realised, hang on a sec, how come these are like five or sorry, about six or seven thousand years older than the main part of Stonehenge, um, which is right next door? It's like two hundred yards away from it, um, and so that kind of was blowing our mind because you know, and then there's, there's been this dating of Stonehenge recently, where officially you know it's around two thousand five hundred BC or thereabouts, built over several hundred years, but there's a nearby settlement which they believe were the builders of Stonehenge, which goes back to 7,500 uh, BC. So, there's, there's a, so suddenly it throws Stonehenge into the into the sort of area, you know, the um, time scale of places like Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, which was another theme at the conference. Um, and also, uh, you know, people were really questioning the antiquity of other sites around the world because some of them uh, feel so ancient and yet they're dated just a couple of thousand years ago, you know. I think we're just looking for a bit of truth there. We're on a quest for the truth about really the origins of these sites and also us, our ancestors who built them and, uh, and sort of reconnecting uh, with that era, really. It really would be nice to know the truth, wouldn't it? <laughs> We've been led astray deliberately sometimes and unintentionally at other times, but it seems, though, that all these, these historical places seem to be coming together at the same sort of time frame, much older than we believe. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, it seems to be coming out now for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe it's, um, I mean, look at, you know, Gebekli Tepe is a brilliant example. And it was just kind of hiding there under the dirt until like 15 years ago. Um, suddenly, it's, they is the oldest, most sophisticated ancient site in the world. And, um, and I think other stuff's kind of sort of correlating with that now. And I think there's going to be a kind of, um, a sort of cascade, a cascading of this information coming out because the dating, the way we date things, I mean, I, um, I haven't, you know, there's, there's several different ways they do it, but ca- carbon 14 dating is the classic one, but no one's hundred percent about these, you know, no one was hundred percent if they are exactly right. You know, there's, there's lots of leeway to be given there. Even when they date things it's always within a few hundred years period. So it could, sometimes it could just be wrong, the wrong bit of, uh, you know, to carbon or whatever they use to kind of test the age of the site it could be from an, an earlier. It could be from somewhere else. Could have blown in there. Who knows? And so there's a lot of questions about it. But this thing with Quebecli Tepe is kind of um, opened up a can of worms, really. And I think. Um, I mean, you look at the work of people like Michael Crimo, for instance, who spoke at our event last year. Uh, some of his dating of, of fossils, um, skeletons, and even human-made artifacts go back millions of years. So there's a whole other dimension uh, to just just a few 10,000 years ago. There's millions of years old things being found, human skeletons and sophisticated little bits of technology or, or, or jewellery. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of questions yet to be answered. That's one of the reasons why we do the conference, we do the tours. Uh, we have a network of people connecting up around the world just kind of to you know question these things and um, um, see what we can find, often in our backyard. It's not always in traditional sites. Sometimes when people find things in their own vicinity, they're, they're literally their own garden sometimes but often just in the local area when they're metal detecting or you know checking things out that things get discovered so this is what happened with Gebekli Tepe just a bit of rock was sticking out the ground uh, and they discovered this huge megalithic temple site which is much older than um, any other site on the planet pretty much 
And again, if uh, any listeners are interested in that, Robert Shock was on the show a few months ago. So you can just go to Voice America or my website, petertongue.com, and find that show that Robert did, again, talking about this ancient, ancient site. Uh, it's also interesting, Hugh, that scientists, uh, the old sort of traditional scientists, hang on to this very precise notion of science. And yet when you come below the surface, you begin to realize that a good example is carbon dating. It's nowhere near as precise as they would think it is. And, and all of science right now is up in the air because they're all changing their minds, aren't they? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they, they have their paradigm that they like to stick to, which, which is like just the nature of the way academia kind of functions. But I'm very inspired by kind of early, some of the early explorers, like even like Mitchell Hedges and others who just um, just went out there and did it. And they didn't really, you know, a lot of, you know, you don't need to have academic qualifications to explore and find things and go to remote places. And, and even, you know, just look around your local area, you find things that haven't been noticed. I mean, my local, where I lived for many years in Cherry Hinton near Cambridge, uh, it's right at the base of the Gog Magog Hills, which is what Wandlebury, the site I'm writing a book about, sits on this ancient earthwork site. Um, and just up on the hills there, just where, just below there, they found some, you know, very, very tall skeletons reported about 150 years ago. We're talking like seven or maybe even bigger, seven feet or maybe even eight feet tall. So there's like this tradition of giants in my local village. And I've been hunting these skeletons for years and still haven't found them. Working with my archaeologist friend, uh, Michelle Bullivan, who's a local archaeologist there. But just under the bottom of the hill, there's like this megalithic stone in, the, in, this, in this pub car park. And uh, it's got this sort of footprint in it. This sort of, it's like a shoe, old shoe print. And it's like this ancient looking bit of basalt kind of vol- volcanic rock, maybe a sarsen or something. And it just shouldn't be there, yet it marks the spot where there's an ancient spring, there was an ancient settlement, and yet this stone has never been mentioned in any any literature in the whole of the history of Cambridgeshire anywhere. And so I did, you know, so it's amazing just by that. So I wrote an article about it. It's going to be in my new book and all this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, so people, there is stuff just nearby, and, and people don't realise the importance of little things and little clues you might find um, in the local vicinity. And it's interesting, again, that most people would, would know about the Michael Mary line, which runs across England from the southwest corner to northeast. And most people know all about the connection to Avebury and Glastonbury and down to St. Michael's Mound. But they don't seem to think about the other end of that line, which actually runs through this area that you're talking about. Well, yeah, this is the area, I mean, I'm talking about just literally just southeast of Cambridge. Um, but it's also the wider area, obviously. You have places like Royston Cave, which is slightly further southwest. Um, and that's kind of Hertfordshire. And there's this ancient sort of man-made, like, Templar grotto cave under the streets of Royston. And this big this megalith marks the spot above it. There's even long barrows, you know, and round barrows up on the hills just, just next to Royston, which is now, annoyingly, been turned into a golf course. So you can't tell which is the golf course, which is the mounds and the barrows. And <laughs> uh, that's, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? <laughs> I tell you what, there will be. Um, there will be when uh, in a thousand years' time we try and work out what's going on here. Um, you know, uh, you know, people will be thinking golf courses are like sacred landscapes and all this kind of stuff. So we've got to be careful. Um, we shouldn't really be interfering with ancient sites anyway, like that. Which is, uh, but it does happen. You know, and uh, that's one of the things. Um, you know, we sort of promote at the conference is the protection of sites, obviously. Because um, that's just the nature of you know modern construction. It, again, this comes back to the thing of you need to document what's in your local landscape 
to then make sure it gets recognised as something important so it doesn't get destroyed when they decide to develop that area. Um, this has been a big issue in so many places around the world. Um, and so, yeah, it's worth putting up, um, you know, making a fuss about um, ancient sites in your local area, especially if they become under threat from development, road building, house building or whatever. But it's also important to be aware of over historical time frames that those cultural changes also have changed the landscape from different, uh, different belief systems, different uh, peoples living in that same area, that these things have happened in the past as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I think that, yeah, you look at things through different eras and um, the awareness sort of fluctuates about what's going on in, in the landscape. And there's a lot of magic hidden in the landscape, which people may not be aware of, but they were aware of like 100 or 100. 200 years ago something like that uh, and this comes back really to the whole you know these energy lines we're kind of talking about but also there's an ancient trackway that runs at the same runs parallel uh, to the michael and mary lines um called the ichneald way which um it turns into the pedders way around um, thetford kind of area which is in uh, you know in the more central east anglia uh, northern east anglia and um and so, and that goes up to Sea Henge, which is this ancient kind of wooded henge up in the um, uh, up on Home on Sea, um, which is no longer there. They've moved that to Kingsley Museum. But so there's like, you know, and then that kind of got had to be protected as well, and then it got removed, put in the local. So there's a lot of, uh, and that was probably there for hundreds of years, but no one mentioned it, or thousands of years, no one mentioned you know, it. Was just there, people accepted it. And so, but then as soon as modern, a certain you know cultural kind of influence comes in, it gets removed and destroyed. And it's actually by Time Team who did that. Uh, but it is preserved in the museum, though. So, so one of the neat things about Hugh is that he goes to areas that many. Uh, well, no one else has been to previous, or very few people have, to connect all these energy grids from across the planet. And when we return, we're going to talk about his latest research uh, uh, in the eastern states, uh, in New England and the Ohio Valley. Uh, and I know that he was about to set off there on a, his latest research, so we'll talk about that when we return. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you, to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Many of us make choices in our lives based on how others react. But what should really matter is making our life choices based on what we intuitively feel. By tuning in to The Mystic and the Mystery with Inspired Intuition hosts Beth Porosik and Christine McIver, you'll receive the tools and inspiration you need to do just that. Your fears do not have to drive you, and you are naturally intuitive, creative, and whole. By believing in yourself, you can live the life you've been longing for. Listen for The Mystic and the Mystery every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. 
Be the change. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Just a reminder to go to my website, www.petertongue.com. My uh, June newsletter will be out in the next few days online there. Uh, and also a connection to our Dragon Energy Tour we're taking to the southwest of England and to Scotland in September. And you can click on the logo there and look into those details. I think the energy around that is shifting somewhat, but the tour is definitely on. And uh, there may be some uh, extra spiritually very aware people joining us on that trip which is uh, pretty exciting and also uh, last Saturday I was uh, a guest on the virtual light broadcast lightworker.com with Steve Rother and his group and that will be very uh, shortly loaded up on the lightworker.com website and it is the May uh, 2013 broadcast which, uh, which I was on for 30 minutes so if you want to go and see what I had to say and feel free to go to that particular site. I have with me today Hugh Newman and we were talking before the break about some of the megalithic type structures that are in our own backyard and he has done some significant research in uh, eastern North America looking at some of the structures that exist there and Hugh you're about to set off to America now to do some further research so tell us a bit about that. Well, yeah, I'm just, I mean, I've been there obviously a few times. My lovely uh, girlfriend, Sheena, lives over there as well, so it's ulterior motives. <laughs> but but when she, lives, she lives in Connecticut as well, so there are, we're going we're gonna to do hopefully a little bit of exploring. I want to meet up with a couple of people, um, Jim Vieira and uh, going to meet up with Robert Shock and Henry McLean are all speaking at the conference in October. And uh, we yeah, do a bit of groundwork. There's a couple of sites I want to check out. Uh, there's the Upton Chamber um, and a couple of other chambers, sort of Massachusetts, Southern Connecticut kind of area. Um, but yeah, there's a lot going on out there, really. Um, but I'm also, we also, Sheena and I did a six uh, week road trip around the Ohio Valley, uh, all around the Mound Culture sites, all the way up to Wisconsin and Michigan, down to Kentucky um, and other places, Pennsylvania. And so there's an incredible amount of sites out that way, which I think are much more ancient than are you know presently believed. I think they were rebuilt upon over many different generations and cultures. Um, and this is where obviously the strange giant skeletons are being found. And um, and one of the reasons I want to meet up with Jim Vieira, uh, who lives up in Massachusetts, is back in New England. Is he's been doing some original research, uh, digging digging out all the archives and from the newspapers, the parish magazines, and all this kind of stuff, going way back a couple of couple of hundred years. Um, people, you know, all these reports of them finding these giant skeletons everywhere, double rows of teeth. And, um, extremely tall with some of the bronze armor and strange artifacts and runic writing. It's very strange. So, uh, yeah, I want to, you know, follow up on a bit of that with Jim. And, um, 
Yeah, and also we obviously want to go to Quincy, where we're going to be doing our conference in October. Uh, it's a little bit of research to do there about the old um, Dragon Clan, um, which is something I've been interested in, and I know you are as well. Um, so yeah, it's quite a lot. It's a lot going on in North America. So before we get into talk about the actual sites themselves, let's talk about the Dragon Clan. What what do you know about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it just seems like, I mean, it's, it's kind of been this ongoing thing. I, I lived, obviously, in Glastonbury for many years, just on the tail of the dog, of the Gert Dog of Langport, which is part of the Greater Landscape Zodiac. And I worked with David Hatfield and Sean Kerwin, we were all good friends, uh, questers, checking out, you know, hidden secrets in the landscape. Um, and one of the things that kept coming up was the Dragon Clan. Um, and we know they had a base uh, kind of around Barton St. David, which I believe you've been, vi- you visited recently. And also, which is, the de- you know, almost the dead center, the exact center of the landscape zodiac, like the power spot. It's like right near the dove in the zodiac. And then, and there's a lot, there's, there's a lot to talk about, obviously, the zodiac, but they came from that area, but also they came from kind of Dorset, Devon area. There were kind of connections down there. And a friend of ours who's passed on a few years ago, um, uh, Nigel who ran the Wessex Research Group had, you know, we believe he was kind of connect, reconnecting the dots down there. Uh, but we're talking about, um, you know, going way back, uh, you know, several hundred years ago, really, when uh, the Dragon Clan really fleed from uh, England because they were being persecuted. Um, and they wanted, there was kind of like this new Atlantis to be formed in this new land, America, uh, with John Dee, Christopher Lloyd, Sawatter Raleigh, Christopher Marlowe, Francis Bacon, and even Queen Elizabeth II. And they, they called themselves the Dragons in the 1600s. So, um, uh, and they were kind of connected with the Invisible College. You may have heard of that as well, another kind of secret society. Uh, and this whole monarchy thing they wanted to set up in America. Uh, was kind of got you know was part of the Adams Henry Adams um, uh, you know mo- you know their family came from the whole Barton St David area and they were the first you know John Adams second president uh, his father Henry Adams had all the connections back in England uh, and they actually on Henry Adams gravestone they actually talk about it and this is actually in Quincy you know um, Massachusetts is really right near where we're doing the conference in October it's kind of the reason I wanted to do it there. Um, and they were kind of chased out uh, of the country and fled to America. And this is actually written on this gravestone, and you can go and see it. We're going to do that at the conference, as check it all out, kind of thing. So I think there's, they had an understanding of the Earth mysteries, the ancient geometry knowledge, the landscape knowledge, the you know the feng shui, the energies. Um, and they were kind of they basically had some connection with the megalith builders. They were you know, had a connection with this enchantment, which they knew they could bring back by working with these sites and working with this knowledge. And and you can see the layouts of parts of, you know, Washington, D.C. and um, some larger towns in America. They are based on sacred geometry principles and also ancient metrology, uh, which is the measurement systems, which, again, produce and kind of create an, an enchanted kind of energy because it's all they're all like you know precision geometrical fractions and things like this so there's a lot going on and there's there's all these connections with um you know glastonbury and with kind of new england which kind of fascinates me because i'm connected with you know both areas it's also interesting i know that uh, talking about the dragon clan which was in England would have been Queen Elizabeth's time at the end of the 1590s, 1600s. And then Christopher Wren, who was, again, the architect who designed London based upon a tree of life structure, 
also lived in a in a large house in Barton St. David. So he obviously again was part of that and, and knew uh, the energies of that landscape were were significant and important. Yeah, no, for sure, and um, yeah, and I think you know as, uh, these connections keep popping up. You can't help but you notice, and there's like just the, even like. Um, just the, the layout of the landscape in, in New England. Uh, Glenn Kreisberg's been finding effigies in the landscape up there. Uh, I can't remember exactly where. It's actually on our megalithamerica.com website. There's, there's a short video of some of his work. Um, and you get, you know, similar effigies all over Britain. You know, people say, people like Anthony Thorley, who's um, studying these academically, these landscape zodiacs, is um, something like 60 or so of them in, in, in Britain alone. Um, so there's some weird enchantment kind of magic in the landscape, which is much bigger than we can see with our eyes, and you know, but it's there and it's hidden from us. But we live within it without even realising it. It's quite amazing. So tell us, because uh, some of our listeners may be somewhat surprised to hear about this uh, fairly significant complex of structures in uh, in New England and Ohio. So. Just tell our listeners what actually is there. Give us an overview of what is actually in the landscape and what has been built uh, in, in that corner of the America. Right, well, if we start over on the East Coast, uh, if, we say if we start in Maine, for instance, some of the earliest stone, stone sort of mounds have been found there. They go back maybe four or five, maybe 6,000 years, some of them, uh, which are quite unusual, just burials, nothing uh, significant. But the dating is very interesting because that's much earlier than people realize. Heading further south into the general kind of New England area, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, and going into New York State and also way up into Vermont um, and down even into parts of Pennsylvania. There's a whole kind of megalithic culture that mainly built chambers and had standing stones and built hundreds, if not, sorry, thousands of miles of these megalithic walls, which Patrick Cook, the late Patrick Cook, who unfortunately passed away uh, last year, was had been researching really thoroughly Um and uh, we're actually going to be showing his film at the conference about partly about these. And so there was a major operation going on there, going back, going way back. And, and the Native Americans that you know when asked about many of these sites didn't really know where they came from. They were there when they arrived, kind of thing. And so there's a real deep prehistory going on there. Uh, this goes into New York State as well. There's some very interesting sites there. And we're talking megalithic dolmens, like you get in Europe massive one you get in New York State called Balanced Rock in North Salem uh, which has got this magnetic energy coming out of it and it's been photographed and tested uh, and it's like something like 60 to 80 tons uh, chunk of you know, rock if we head further west, we hit the mound culture area, the sort of western side of Pennsylvania. But you do get some in northern New York State as well, around Syracuse and other places. Um, and this is where it's kind of changed from the megalithic to the mound culture. Um, and uh, the further west you get, you get into the Ohio Valley. That's where it really starts happening. Uh, you get very sophisticated geometries and uh, going over, you know, sometimes a mile long, uh, precision octagonal and rectangular, um, uh, beautiful geometry, octagonal, you know, lots of different shapes, basically, but very accurate, very large, um, and using units of measure connected with the much more ancient world, but also what they found here were these giant skeletons, um, thousands of them, 
hundreds of reports, if not thousands of reports, have now been found. Uh, Ross Hamilton is the uh, sort of um, pioneer of really getting all this information out there. Um, he's our three fantastic self-published books about the Giants um, in that whole area. And he's sort of piece, re-kind of constructed what he believes the history is, uh, con- connecting it with all the myths of the area as well, which is, is fascinating. Um, and also, um, you've got to remember that they were, it seems like they had an enchantment of the landscape already in place. So what the kind of New Atlantis, what the 60, what the sort of 1600s back way back then, that, that when they, the English were trying to create this New Atlantis, it was already really there in many parts of America. This kind of ancient kind of enchantment and geometry and harmony encoded within the landscape. Literally, you could just you walk around it. It was so large, and so yeah, I find that quite interesting that. Um, that the ancients got there first, really, and um, and it's something that is generally just ignored. Many of much of it is destroyed. Uh, most of the mounds are gone, um, and obviously there's the serp- the serpent mound in Peebles, Ohio, which is a remarkable sight in itself. But um, but yes, yeah, there's, there's a lot to see there. We just, you know sort of got to t- you know saw a little bit of it when we visited there for a few weeks last year. So here we're going to take our next break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask you to specifically talk about dolmens and chambers and the grids and, and, and what you believe, because you've got a lot of experience in this, why it was set up the way that it was and what, what actually is the significance. So we'll break now. Is Peter Tone for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. 
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. just want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors for this series of shows, which is through www.myheartcenteredjourney.com and Sherry Chase of Chase International Real Estate Company. And they have just hosted a significant uh, summit conference in Lake Tahoe, Nevada with Dr. Abby, which took place over the last week. And this Thursday, tomorrow, actually at 5.30 in our Ambassadors of Light class, which is at a bi-weekly um, talk about what is going on in the world. Shari will be giving us uh, an update on what took place in the conference. And I'll also be adding my uh, three pennies worth as to what I believe is taking place right now on the planet, which I think is really exciting. And talk about exciting, let's go back to Hugh Newman. And, and Hugh, I'd love you to give our, our listeners an understanding of why these structures were built the way that they were and what is the benefit because obviously a great deal of effort was put in and perhaps you could use some examples from your experience in North America of, of the structures that exist and why they're there. Uh, well, if we continue uh, talking about the Mound culture, for instance, the Serpent Mound in Peebles, Ohio, um, particularly interesting site, not just for what it looks like, which is beautiful in itself. It's like a, it's got geom- a lot of geometry hidden within it, which is something Ross Hamilton specialized in in one of his books, or two books actually about Serpent Mound. Um, but it's also got an energetic thing because it's right on the edge of this crypto explosion crater where um, a very ancient um, impact on the earth went extremely deep into the earth, almost hitting the mantle, sort of having effects going really deep. And so what that does, it kind of... Um, connects with a, a whole different part of the Earth, and you have all these magnetic and gravitational anomalies there, and people get driven a bit mad if they spend too much time there. But this is actually on the edge of that, so it's kind of using that power, um, and it's on a, on a bluff as well, so it has like an a, a electricity kind of charge moving through it. And it used to have this megalith sitting in on top of it, which not many people realise, uh, which is something that Ross and, uh, and also Jeffrey Wilson, who's a researcher out there, uh, found when they were walking around the bottom of it. It's almost like it had been pulled out, thrown down the side. And it's clearly like a Manitou stone, which is like a, a stone that kind of, um, it's like a power stone. It's like a, an, um, it's like an Axis Mundi stone um, of, of that kind of area. And that would have been right sitting right in the mouth or in the egg that is in the serpent's mouth uh, up on the bluff. And it would have acted as kind of like an electrifier attracting th- lightning. Um, and allowing earth energy to come up through it. So it'd be like the, like the tradition of the Thunderbirds and the serpents connecting. And this is kind of like what this site could have been for. Um, it's even got little wings on it as well. It's like a winged serpent. It's got very small kind of earthen wings coming off the side. And, and we know about the winged serpent um, uh, people that go all the way down into Mesoamerica and also South America with Quetzalcoatl and Viracocha respectively. Um, and we get similar traditions in Europe and other places too. And maybe um, this sort of, it's almost like there was this ancient secret tradition way, way back in North America, which not many, you know, people just generally don't think was there, going back before the kind of um, traditional Native American uh, culture and what they were working with, although I'm sure they were influenced by it. Um, and, um, and the same thing, even you know, it's almost like what when the Elizabethans kind of came over, um, they were kind of trying to find this, instigate this new Atlantis on what they thought was like virgin territory, but it was actually already instigated as a sacred landscape, which some people even believe was Atlantis itself. So it's kind of ironic uh, when you look at the 
you know what um, all the dragon clan were up to when it was already kind of here but so there's a lot of energy work you can connect with the energies not just the serpent mound but also uh, the megalithic sites you know uh, another one in America is uh, North Salem uh, Balanced Rock which is a huge boulder uh, on about five quartzite blocks smaller ones that all fit together uh, megalithic yards apart suggesting it was built by humans um and it's right, and that's right on a area of geology where two different geologies meet, and the energies kind of cascade there, and lots of electric charges um, found there as well. So people have you know consciousness altering effects at these sites because of that, and you can also enhance seeds and grains and get them to, uh, get them to improve their yield quality. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on at these sites uh, in the invisible realms, really. And what about uh, t- tell us a bit about chambers and what what their significance was. Well, they're a bit like kind of dolmens, but they're 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 literally like um, uh, built into the earth. Um, some were freestanding with the earth put over them. Most of them were kind of built into the earth. They had sort of walls around them, often built with iron ore and magnetite, uh, which is kind of from you get that a lot in New England in certain areas, New York State and others, uh, which is very ma- highly magnetic, positively magnetic, and the, the, this. Is actually within the earth underneath it. So you have all these magnetic anomalies. And most of the chambers they found were actually built directly upon a magnetic anomaly, um, which is, you know, very interesting that they, they knew where to put them. And, you know, very interesting how they knew where to put them um, because it kind of blows out the idea that they were just built as colonial root cellars to keep your vegetables in, which is the standard <laughs> view. Um, and it, yeah, it's, beca- it's become a bit of a, like a, an ongoing kind of saga, a bit of a joke, really. But it's, it's unfortunate because many of these chambers get destroyed because people just think they're colonial root cellars and they don't, they don't have any historical value. Um, but they do. And um, so thank God for people like Nero, the New England, New England Antiquities Research Association, and also Kepri, which um, uh, kind of volunteer association in New York State, who are all, all involved. We were involved with both groups, um, you know, um, when we, when we you know, do research out there and our conference and everything. So, um, yeah, and that's just, that's just that, that part of Northeast America, but there's the whole world has these sites and these energies. And it was a global, um, I think it was a global phenomenon and people had a much higher understanding of these kind of secret energies uh, and secret traditions. So before we move on to that, because I, I do want to do that, but before we do, I just wanted to ask you, when you show up at a site that isn't well known and, and there hasn't been much evidence or work done, what, what do you actually do to tune in and pick up ley lines and, and energy spots and, and so on? What do you actually physically do when you, when you arrive there? Well, yeah, it really depends how much how much time you've got and if you're with a bunch of people or not and things like that. Um, but generally, um, if I'm on my own, you know, with, with Sheena or just with a friend or a researcher or something like that, then, yeah, you do spend time there. You just ha- the best thing for me to do is just hang out for as long as possible and just not do anything and then you know, get a feel for it. Maybe, you know, I, I, you know, I like to do a bit of research on sites before I visit them, if you can, if, if there is any research. Um, but yeah, then you, I do some dowsing. I check out the different energy lines, if there's any telluric currents, any underground water, any ley lines or uh, astronomical alignments. Uh, might do a bit of just questioning, asking basic questions about the site, what age it might be and things like that, and tuning into that. Um, then obviously you need to, it's just good to spend time there. Some people like to meditate. I kind of, if I get a chance, I'll sit down and meditate if there's no one around and things like that. Uh, and just spend time, just go quiet there and just, um, you know, connect really. I think that's, uh, I think, 
these sites have uh, an ambient sort of quality about them. They're sacred spaces. They're not just um, uh, they're not just sort of you know practical. There's like a sacred sacredness about them, and often you get this with the certain grids that form around them. Um, like geomancy thing is like you check the different grids. There's the Hartman, the Curry grid, the Schneider grid, and all these other grids. You just check which ones there. Sometimes what happens is uh, right at the bit. The, the center of the site is um, these grids kind of like aren't they don't actually touch the, the main site they kind of get pushed away by the energy somehow and there's this like neutral kind of space which just allows whatever natural energy to do its thing there if there is any energy sometimes it can be purely still nothing going on other times it can be very powerful um, you know it, it depends what's going on there could be multiple different things happening under the earth uh, and also with the, um, the sky as well, which is like, again, the tradition of the thunderbird and the, and the serpents. Um, and so, yeah, and you just got to tune in, really. I, I've had strange storms happen when I've just arrived and <laughs> things like that a few times, actually. Just before the night I went, before I went to Serpent Man, there's a massive, the biggest thunder and lightning storm ever. I, I, I was scared by it. It woke me up. I actually used to get up and go outside and have a look at it and tune into it and stuff. And that was just before we were going to go and see Serpent Man the next morning. It kind of woke me up at like 4 a.m. Um, it's kind of strange. I wonder if that was the Thunderbirds giving me a little um, heads up. Um, <laughs> be a bit, um, bit careful um, or something. Now, I know you've got a really, what looks like a really interesting uh, workshop in Glastonbury talking about this uh, North American landscape and the, and the pilgrimage. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that's organised by the Gatekeeper Trust. Um, there's Peter Dawkins is the you know, main guy behind that and, um, and Louise Coe is organising it. And I'm doing a talk there also with Celia Gunn, who's doing her uh, excellent um, research and connections she's had out um, there. And also, yeah, I'm going to be really speaking about you know, my interpretation of the sites, really, of where we've been talking about today, really, and much of the stuff I'm probably going to mention, bits and pieces of today's, um, you know, discussion, really. So, but I think there's an overriding kind of ignorance about that whole part of North America, which is frustrating, but it's like, it's an opportunity for uh, people to learn about it. It's kind of weird that I'm an Englishman going over there and getting excited by it and, you know, or the locals aren't, but it's kind of, but it's kind of cool, you know. I like that, and uh, it's nice to, you know. So sometimes we turn up at these mounds, like we we're on a road trip, and um, it was really funny. And locals are going, "What are you doing? What is this?" <laughs> like we have to explain what was behind the next to their house. It's kind of funny, but yes, yeah, so this this is going to be a one day co- uh, conference in Glastonbury, organised by the Gatekeeper Trust on the thirteenth uh, of July. Uh, people can get tickets. We're going to hopefully try and film it if people can't make it. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting that, um, that knowledge just seems to be getting back out there into the more public domain. And you mentioned earlier, you've got a conference in Boston in October. Just tell us about that. Yeah, just south of Boston, Quincy. Uh, it's like a historical town. It's very easy to get to from Boston. There's this 10 minute bus or train or so, or you can just drive. It's very close. It's just a suburb, uh, sorry, um, an extension of Boston, but it's his own very cool, um, old town, which has got the connections with the Adams, uh, I mentioned earlier, we were talking about. Um, but it's also got, um, not too far from there, there are multiple kind of sites, chambers, megaliths, balanced rocks, and things like that. And uh, you've got Newport Tower in Rhode Island. So we're doing our big uh, bi-yearly conference at the moment in America. We did one in 
Glastonbury, Connecticut last year, which is um, <laughs> a choice place to do it. And it was really had really good fun there. It's actually where I met Sheena and some bunch of very interesting people. Um, and this year we kind of moved it into Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, just because there's a lot of stuff happening around there as well. Um, and it's on the fifth and sixth of October. We've got you know we've got some big big names like John Anthony West and Robert Shock um, and um, Jim Vieira, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, and also John Martineau is going to be coming over from England, who's done the excellent uh, wooden book series. And uh, he's got some brilliant original geometrical research on ancient sites he's going to be sharing with us. Um, he also founded Megalithomania with me, actually, and, and our colleague Gareth Mills. And Rob Roy, who's a megalith builder, he makes massive megalithic sites. He's going to give a few tips on how to do it if people are into that kind of stuff. Uh, Rene Fleury, who um, runs Kepri, and she's got an expert on all the sites in New York State. And we're going to be doing three days of tours to America Stonehenge, Gungee Womp, hopefully Upton Chamber if we can get permission, and a few other chambers and, and rocks, and also to uh, the Newport Tower, hopefully, in Rhode Island, which is very mysterious, Templar connections. Um, and, yeah, we're going to we work, with, you know, get, we work closely, if we can, with Nira, who are kind of the... Uh, sort of look after the sites there, and also Kepri and um, and uh, and with Glenn and Cameron Broughton, they, they work with us a bit, and yes, yeah, it's, it's good. And uh, we just feel there's um, you know a bit of quite a lot of sites there, and it, there's some energy there about this kind of stuff. And sometimes it just needs to be um, you know needs to be made a big deal out of, and that's what we're there for. <laughs> so here, what's the uh, website people can go to for this information? Well, yeah, they can go to uh, uh, the website for that conference is megalithamerica.com like one word megalithamerica.com and then there's obviously megalithomania.co.uk which is the um, website with all of our stuff on it all our events and tours and things like that and uh, we're doing uh, we're doing some stuff in Ireland in August um, a little trip there and also to Peru and Bolivia in November with um, Brian Forrester who's been on your show and um yeah, we do lots of things. We like to get around the world uh, with a megalithic intention and uh, to kind of see what we can find. And, we, we, you know, we, we research while we're there if we can. You know, we actually encourage people to bring their, you know, equipment, dowsing rods, if they've got any special, you know, techniques that we can sort of get the knowledge from. We, we kind of have fun with that. Um, and we'll be doing that in New England, obviously. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of um, lot of things we're up to. People can just check out the site, really. And uh, uh, my, my personal web page is just hughnewman.co.uk, um, and they can just find all my stuff there. Okay, thanks. Here we're going to our final break, and when we come back, we will go global to talk about the the biggest picture of all for planet Earth. It's Peter Tongue for awakening to conscious co-creation. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. 
If you are looking to shift from struggle to a life of alignment with your deepest truth, you'll want to tune in to Thresholds to Awakening with host Sway Emily Spilkin. Our program will help you discover that your deepest challenges are not mistakes, but opportunities to become who you really are. Thresholds to Awakening. Enter your darkness to find your light, where Sway speaks with spiritual luminaries, cutting-edge thought leaders, and experts in the field of transformation. Listen live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tong. Just a reminder that Hugh's website is www.hughnewman.com. His latest book, Earth Grids, The Secret Patterns of Gaia's Sacred Sites, Research in the Earth's Geometrical Energy System. And I'd like uh, Hugh now to expand from looking at these local regional structures to help us understand how this all fits together on on a global scale. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't help but notice the um, connections and the similarities all all over the world. Uh, I mean, one example we mentioned earlier was the dolmen, which is like a tabletop, you know, like a large megalithic block on top being held up by two or three or four other stones. And this is everywhere. This is almost every continent and country in the world has dolmens. Now, you have to question why that is and how that is that just a, um, a coincidence or is that something else um, and so that kind of uh, kind of bugs me a little bit but you also you get you know lots of pyramids you get even stone circles in very remote places which shouldn't be there even in Peru uh, even in Brazil all the way over to um, Armenia and Morocco and obviously all over Europe as well so uh, if the question well you know is this just a coincidence I mean you know is, is was architecture like that people were just picking up on it or was there a global kind of community that had an understanding of this and I think there was because these sites were used uh, now they've all been tested energetically Energetically and geomantically, people realize they were they have an energy thing and they were, they were kind of harnessing the natural energies of the planet in the local area for local communities to work with and use and uh, for shamanic purposes and for practical purposes like enhancing the seeds and the grains. And I think to maintain a kind of harmony and a kind of cent- central spot of their kind of culture, like an Axis Mundi or a, um, just finding that exact sacred center, which is something that John Michel was very um, very keen to talk about. Um, and he actually wrote a book about it called uh, The Center of the World or, or, recent, uh, several years ago. So, um, yeah, you, you can't help but notice the similarities. They're just like everywhere. And uh, you get this... Um, like this we mentioned earlier the plume serpent or the wing serpent it's the same you can find that at the serpent mound we have store obviously the dragons of Europe dragons of China 
you had the Quetzalcoatl myths and legends and stories of Mexico, uh, and the Viracochan of uh, Peru and Bolivia. You have Bochica in um, Colombia, and so and you find even even um, some of the Egyptian gods have the same stories, and the Sumerian gods. So uh, you have the Rainbow Serpent in Australia so you, you can't help but that, that it seems to be cultural influences and I think these so-called serpent people were, were traders uh, they were like magicians they were like uh, working around the world on the, working with these energies they were very helpful they were kind of explorers and seekers and um, we have to kind of question why this isn't being addressed academically and researched and it, or has it been and it's being suppressed because these people are obviously um, our kind of forefathers and this is something that a lot of us, you know, we're kind of we're reconnecting uh, the dots of the ancient world um, to kind of feel complete now in a way, sort of spiritually, where people kind of want to know really where they came from. Uh, really, really want to know, um, and I think um, you know these ancient sites hold that magnetism to us because they're the only remnants of that that we can actually reconnect to. So I think there's something in that um, on a local and a global scale. So we're talking here about both the practical side of, of the sustainability of the community, but also this higher consciousness aspect to it as well. Well, yes, yeah, like the microcosm macrocosm thing. Um, yeah, I mean, what you do in your local site will affect the global system. And I think that that was taught by these magicians or whoever they were, these serpent people, to everyone around the world. Um, as like we're building a greater thing here, you have to work it, you know, to maintain, because something may have happened to the Earth. Um, so there must be some asteroid impact or who knows what it was, uh, pole shift, who knows. And these were like the fixers. These go around the Earth. Uh, and so these sites, this is why they look the same everywhere, because they were getting the local people to build them the same. And they, you know, instructing. And this is, you can actually hear this clearly in some of the traditions um, uh, from different parts of the world. So, yeah, um, yeah, there's, there's certainly that. And I think, um, you know, inspired people to build and copy, you know, what they were taught over the different generations as well. So there was a big focus on December 21st, 2012. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Okay. Um, so from your experience working closely with the landscape and with these structures, what sense have you had of, of a shift that may have taken place since then? Well, I think a relief is the main one. Um, that <laughs> no, no doom and gloom happened. Um, but I think it was a bit of, you know, it's an anticlimax. Everyone, I think, agrees with that. Um, it wasn't exactly the biggest party everyone was hoping for. Um, but no, not, no real kind of alien sightings or motherships or anything like that. But I think it was like a deadline for people. People set this kind of intention to have things in place by then, uh, spiritually or on a more sort of consciousness global scale um, and I think maybe that has happened maybe the, we're feeling the ripples starting to feel the ripples of that now and also there's like a new era obviously the end of the traditional uh, long count calendar which actually Jeff Stray believes does go on he's actually got a book coming out um, suggesting it's actually a 20 Bacton calendar not a 13 Bacton, which is so puts it a few thousand years into the future. So, um, but I think, you know, I think people worked with it as kind of like a deadline. Some people don't like that word deadline, but I think it's, it's a valid word. And, um, and it kind of people, you know, I think other people feel like they've fallen back into normality again because there's no big kind of 
end there's no big date to sort of fix yourself upon anymore but i think it's like you know i think people just have to be you know it, you know we people kind of built everything up to that point and um and i think people are, it's there now it's there the hard work kicks in and we have to kind of act it every day and create that every day and maintain that kind of level of consciousness um, globally every day and individually and so um that's where the, that's where the work comes in this is um you know this is the nature of it well Hugh, I, that's a really good way to finish and i really really appreciate the work that you do on behalf of all of us traveling around the world and going to some of these spots that people aren't very aware of and making them known to us and i really appreciate the work you're doing and thank you for your time with me today well, th- thanks for having me on. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks, Hugh. So my guest next week is Loris Spagna, and she'll be talking about her interesting near-death experiences, her work working consciously and spiritually with the animal kingdom, and also about our dormant DNA and how we can begin to activate it and work at a higher level of awareness and consciousness. I hope you've enjoyed today's show, www.hughnewman.com. Lots of all sorts of really interesting stuff on his website as well as the Megalithomania site. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tong for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.